December the 2nd, 2030, the Olympic torch was passing through the remote Siberian town of Gorno Altais. In a part of the world where traditional dress is still worn and centuries-old shamanism is still practiced, the torch relay team requested an unusual favor from the locals. It's one they're unlikely to have received before or since. For there, in a region straddling the borders of Kazakhstan, China, and Mongolia, and where the annual temperature averages a bitter minus three degrees Celsius, Altai shamans were asked to pray for snow. Of course, the divine intervention wasn't intended for the effortlessly frosty Altai Republic. Instead, the subtropical city of Sochi, 3,000 miles away on the Black Sea coast, was the intended target. Sochi, a renowned beach resort, seemed an odd choice as the host of the 2014 Winter Olympic Games. It was the warmest city in Russia and experienced only two days of snow that entire year. Test events had been cancelled due to melting venues and the organising committee were nervous. They were ready to try anything to ensure the conditions suitable for the biggest winter sports event on the planet. The Shamans were happy to help. When the Games began two months later, Sochi looked exactly as a Winter Olympics is expected to look, draped in a gleaming white fluffy blanket. To all of you, athletes, officials, spectators and fans around our globe, I say, enjoy the Olympic Winter Games in Sochi 2014. Was it down to a shamanistic miracle? No, of course it wasn't. Just as in Vancouver four years earlier, and in Pyeongchang and Beijing since, Sochi made use of a banquet of exhaustive and costly techniques that diminished Mother Nature's authority. After all, why pray to God when you can simply play God? This is Unsung. Introducing the sports stars you don't know, telling the stories you can't miss. We'll look beyond the headlines and behind the athletes to shine a rare spotlight on the integral men and women in the shadows interwoven in the fabric of sport. This week, we're featuring Winter Olympic Snowmakers. Written and narrated by Alexis James, this episode is called The Snow Whisperers. Combating adverse weather conditions at the Winter Olympics is far from a new battle. In fact, barely a games has gone by without Mother Nature making her mark. At the second ever edition in 1928, Switzerland's alpine town of St. Moritz saw the opening ceremony gate crashed by a violent blizzard, damaging the open air stadium. Days later, temperatures rose dramatically, causing major disruption to the schedule. Four years on, Lake Placid shrugged off the heat by bussing in snow from over the border in Canada. The military was involved at Cortina d'Ampezzo in 1956, drafted in to haul snow from nearby mountains. And at Innsbruck in 1964, the Austrian army had to carve 20,000 ice bricks to form the bobsleigh run and hand-pack 40,000 cubic metres of snow into the alpine skiing routes. By the time the Olympic flame returned to Lake Placid in 1980, its organisers didn't need to knock on Canada's door like a red-faced neighbour in need of loo roll. Lake Placid, New York, the site of the 13th Olympic Winter Games, 
was truly a global arena. Instead, reflecting the global growth of the Games, it became the first Winter Olympics to use snow made by machines. One thing a Winter Olympics can't do without is snow. For a time, the non-wintry weather here in the Adirondack Mountains was posing a problem. Masses of ice blocks were brought in, but even these melted in the midday sun. But modern technology came to the rescue. These artificial snow guns, using only water and compressed air, can blast out snow for hour after hour if need be. It's expensive, but it works. These days, when the games begin, no blizzard, drought or heatwave can stop it. But to beat Mother Nature at our own game, you need the brightest and most innovative minds in the business. It took years off my life. <laughs> I prematurely aged. All my hair fell out, but uh, that's a pretty common experience for a lot of people involved in games development. But I was really a professional personal challenge, and, and I, I love the pace and excitement and the, the novelty of doing work that we really knew could be used to make a difference. After successfully winning a Winter Olympics bid, the first action for any host is to recruit a prophet. This Olympic soothsayer need not consult tea leaves, crystal balls, or even the stars. Instead, they should be a wizard with a weather vane. In 2010, Chris Doyle was the in-house prophet of the Vancouver Olympics, or, to give him his official title, Chief Meteorologist. When weather forecasters forecast for huge areas like we have in Canada, they're really looking at uh, forecast regions of thousands of square kilometres. But this, So this is quite different. This is a point forecast. But forecasting for the Olympics isn't the same as advising Canadians on whether they need to pack an umbrella. Chris's unenviable task was equivalent to asking Carol Kirkwood to predict the exact weather in your back garden. It's not only a point forecast, but it's a point forecast where you need to produce very specific forecasts tuned to sports weather thresholds, like things like visibility and the kind of precipitation that falls and the, the intensity of precipitation that falls at a very small location. So we needed to get forecasters into those venues well before the, the opening ceremonies to give them at least three or four seasons of experience in the winter at those venues so they, they knew what they were talking about. Yet as any forecaster knows, the trickiest part isn't collecting data, nor even interpreting it. It's being able to communicate their findings to those of us who don't know our cumulus from our nimble stratus. From the public watching on TV to the decision makers at the Olympic Games. They would not wait for the weather to happen to make a decision. They would look to us and say, what's going to happen, and then make a decision before. And that's exactly how it worked. From using wind readings to set the start times for the ski jump, to completely overhauling the Paralympics schedule to prevent the high-speed events from clashing with days of poor visibility, Chris's forecasts influenced several key decisions at the Games. That was very rewarding because we, we could see that we were making a real substantive to the games with our forecast, not with observed weather, which is the way decisions were made in the past by, by actual forecasts themselves. This also meant casting Chris as the messenger of doom on more than one occasion, especially when organisers were sweating on the snow status of Cypress Mountain, where the freestyle skiing and snowboarding were due to take place. Chris's forecast suggested that it would be affected by El Nino, an irregular climate phenomenon born in the Pacific Ocean its warming effect in Vancouver would be significant. Chris found himself in this strange situation where if he was right, he'd be unpopular. And if he was wrong, 
he'd be out of a job. It turned out to be the former. As we forecast, uh, El Nino conditions did arrive early in the spring of, of, of 2010. And in January, uh, the month prior to the opening ceremonies, we basically all watched the Cypress venue melt away. Vancouver closed the Cypress Mountain Resort to the public and called Chris into an executive committee meeting to provide the latest forecasts. I'm sorry to say that we don't see any appreciable cooling in the near future and very little chance of extra snow before the opening ceremony. And this was about in about the middle of January. So uh, he said, OK, well, I'm really sorry to hear that. Then they launched their own contingency plan. The organizing committee was ready. They had the forecast in hand and they knew who to call. Through equal parts of imagination, engineering, and technology, SMI Snowmakers extends your snow season with or without Mother Nature's permission. From Sarajevo to Salt Lake, Kalia to Pyeongchang, much of the white canvas on which Olympic athletes have painted history hasn't come from the heavens, but from machines built in Michigan, USA. If you think about natural snow, uh, you know, sometimes those flakes take, you know, hours or days to form. They'll be up there drifting around. And in snowmaking, we basically had three to 15 seconds to try to freeze these droplets. Joe van der Kellen is the CEO of SMI Snowmakers. Founded by his father, Jim, in 1974, their debut product was the Snowstream 320. It was the first mass-produced snow machine that didn't require compressed air. But it took 10 years before they got the nod to help out at the Winter Olympics in Sarajevo. Blue skies for the Calgary meeting. All the young be hail and hearty. Here's the garland of our greeting from Sarajevo, Yugoslavia. More than 40 years on, and the 320 has been replaced by sophisticated fan guns that resemble jumbo jet engines. They have names like Polecat, Puma, and Wizard. They bring a whole new meaning to the term Sun's out, guns out. Like most tech these days, they can even be operated by a smartphone. But the underlying principles of snowmaking remain the same. So snowmaking involves typically pressurized water to create small water droplets pushed through a nozzle. And then we need to create nucleation or what I call ice seeds. And those ice seeds mix with the spray water droplets and create the ice seeds to nucleate the bulk water, we call it. And then with the fans, you throw it up and out, and it might be anywhere from 30 feet in front of the snow gun or 10 meters to, say, 60 meters away. So it's got that hang time to freeze. Just don't, whatever you do, make the mistake of calling it artificial snow. One of my bigger pet peeves when, when people call it artificial snow, because it is real snow. It's not artificial snow. I like to say it's machine-made snow. Following Chris Doyle's ominous forecasts in 2010, there was only one phone number the Vancouver's Winter Olympics organisers were going to call. And it was the one with a Michigan area code. And it's a measure of how well-regarded Joe's company is in Olympic circles that, four years later, even the Russians came calling for what would be SMI's toughest challenge yet. Yeah, I'll never forget the first time I got off a plane in Sochi at what was the military airport at the time. And as you walk out of the airport, you see a palm tree. I asked our host, I said, well, how far is the mountain from here? He's like, oh, it's about 60 kilometers. The crow flies that way. And he's not pointing north. He's kind of pointing a little bit north and a little bit east. And 
I'm like, ooh, okay, and what elevation are we at? Well, you know, the base here is probably a thousand meters, you know, and the top's, you know, 2,800 or something. It's like, oh, okay, this will be interesting. So yeah, that was uh, that one took a lot of time and effort and a, a significantly increased snowmaking budget from what was originally discussed. SMI helped build Suchi's resort from scratch, installing more than 400 snow guns over 20 miles of slopes for the alpine, snowboard, and freestyle competitions. The first time I ever went there, you know, there was nothing built. There was barely roads up on that mountain and, you know, huge creek crossings and these tracked Russian vehicles that little iffy kind of driving around trying to figure out where the slopes are going and where ponds are going to be and water sources. To provide the 12,000 gallons per minute of water required, they built two lakes sourced from a mountain river fed by 35,000 meters of pipes. And while gravity provided some welcome help, eight megawatts of added pumping power was required to deliver the water at high pressure. It was estimated that 80% of the snow in Sochi was machine made. In Pyeongchang in 2018, where SMI built a brand new lake that could store 33 million gallons of water, that number reached that's Joe's daughter, Brooke. I am a third generation in this business, so I sort of grew up here, like running around in diapers and coloring and doing everything. So I feel like I've worked here for my entire life. As part of the new generation of snowmakers, Brooke isn't kidding herself as to why their snow guns are more in demand than ever. One thing in particular that we've noticed is what we call snow gun density. So instead of having snow machines that are 150 meters apart from each other, 100 meters apart, they're, they're going to 20 to 50 meters apart. They're getting snow guns that are closer and closer, so that way if there's a temperature window of, say, a day or two, they can, re- they can open a trail very quickly. So that has been a, a trend that we're seeing in this industry. Goal now versus back then is how do you not only make snow, but make it in a more energy efficient way in a higher quality type of snow. Snowmaking requires vast quantities of water. It takes more than 280,000 litres to cover an area of 200 feet in six inches of snow. But Joe insists it's more efficiently used than in other water reliant industries. One of our sort of company mantras from day one was to have energy efficient snowmaking. Snowmaking is really one of the most efficient water users as sort of an industry, because we take that water and we put it out on the slopes and it stays there and then it melts and it goes back into the water supply where we took it from. So we say we return 85 to 90% of the water we use. Whereas, you know, a bottled water plant, a beer plant, you know, a lot of these industrial processing, they're 100% water users. 
Yet while SMI are always striving to improve the efficiency of their machines, there's no getting away from the fact that snowmaking requires high levels of energy, especially when pumping vast quantities of water uphill. Snow production typically accounts for more than half of all annual energy costs at resorts that regularly use snowmaking machines. And that isn't the only polar bear in the room when it comes to snowmaking. For it turns out these snow guns tend to fire blanks when the temperature rises above zero. People think you can make snow in any temperature. And, you know, we have to be below freezing, depending on humidity. It's, it's kind of a combination of temperature and relative humidity. People just think you can take a, a house faucet and power a snowmaking system for a large ski area. So the volume of water used is also fairly significant. And some people, you know, they'll call up out of the blue and say, hey, you know, my kid's having a birthday party. Can you bring a machine over for, you know, his birthday party? And it's the middle of July and... Uh, you know, no, actually we can't. It means increasing the number of guns is not always the solution to a melting ski slope. In Vancouver, the hosts found that no matter how many snow guns they had in their holster, nature was still the quickest to draw. Weatherman Chris Doyle could only watch as his troubling forecast played out, just as he'd predicted, with temperatures too high to create snow. They couldn't make snow, basically, during the month of January. It got too warm and too wet, even at high elevation, caused by foreseeable conditions. Vancouver took inspiration from its historic predecessors and brought in snow by any means possible. They launched their own contingency plan, basically to use helicopters to basket lift snow from surrounding higher peaks in the areas and dump it on the venue. And then finally, they employed a fleet of, I think, 300 dump trucks to drive 150 kilometers west to a place called Manning Park, which is sort of in the coastal range of British Columbia, and basically bring truckloads and truckloads of snow directly to the venue, dump it there, and then the, the sport team there would shape it into the into the half pipe and into the jumps and into all those those facilities that, that those snow surfaces that are required for for the field of play. Maintaining the snowpack throughout the day and night took a Herculean effort behind the scenes recalling the Austrian military operations at Innsbruck in 1964. Yet it went completely unnoticed by those watching at home. The Vanock workforce at Cyprus basically maintained the snowpack through extraordinary measures. Like for example, in the jumps for the, for the freestyle, they inserted canisters of, of frozen carbon dioxide just to maintain the icy structure itself. Internal refrigeration, so to speak. So they used a lot of innovative techniques to keep it going. If you looked at the Cypress venue on TV, it looked like a winter wonderland. But if you were there in person, you could see the winter wonderland of the venue and to the left and to the right, mud. But with even warmer temperatures expected in Sochi, Russian organizers knew they'd need more than SMI's guns to ensure they didn't run out of snow. And so they enlisted the help of the Snow Whisperer. Every winter in Finland, Mikko Martikainen welcomes the first sign of snow with the same routine. When the first snow comes, uh, wherever it would be in the world, wherever I am, I stop. Everything stops if possible. I go to the closest restaurant or if I'm home, I open a bottle of cognac. Then, with his cognac in hand, Miko plays a record to salute the winter's first drop. Rachmaninov Piano Concerto Number Two. 
Rico described his relationship with Snow as a love story. His early memories of a 1960s childhood in the small industrial town of Varkaus are dominated by thrills when the flurry arrived every October and tears when the Nordic heat melted it away in May. I still remember when it was snowing, my heart was open and laughing. And uh, when the first snow came, it was wonderful. And of course, in, in the early winter, it will melt down. And I was crying. So there's, there was something I can't, I can't explain that. Love story. Yeah. Miko would spend as much time in the snow as he could. And at just 15, he started coaching at the local alpine ski slope. I was the youngest ski instructor in, the, in Finland, age uh, 17. And later on, I was the youngest Olympic level uh, coach, 25 years, years old, so too young. And we didn't have any, not so much succeed. His lack of success didn't diminish his passion for powder, and he was soon exploring other ways to satiate it. Because there was the love with the snow, I tried to learn quite different things about the snow. I mean, from snow making, how to handle the snow, how to build, for example, uh, snow castles, how to use snow as a uh, secondary wastewater purification system, whatever. The only word you need to have is what's the snow. Eventually, Miko's obsession would take him down the path of what he calls eternal snow. He never thought it would be possible, until one summer's day he went on a bike ride out of town and stumbled on a giant heap of what he calls Coca-Cola snow. And there was a, a sign, uh, waste snow area. It was very, very hot summer day and a huge pile of dark snow because it was collected from the streets. And then I recognized, oh my God, there's so much snow, even it's dirty. The concept of snow preservation would dominate Miko's life for decades. I recognize if you put a big insulation, it will save the snow better. And then I started to speak everyone. We need to start to store in snow. I need to speak this 14 years. They said, you are mad, absolutely crazy. This don't work. A dogged Miko persevered. He moved his family north to Ruka, where he could pester one of the country's largest ski resorts with his idea of using metal sheets to insulate heaps of snow over the summer. Eventually, those at Ruka warmed to his idea, and the world's first mass snow depot was successfully stored throughout the summer of 2000. Miko's innovative storage system isn't intended as a rival to snowmaking technology. Instead, think of it more like the Snowgun's trusty wingman. Storing snow and snowmaking systems, they are big brother and small brothers. They are not enemies. They need each other, the whole package. The basic idea is that Big Brother allows resorts to stockpile during optimal snowmaking temperatures, and the younger sibling protects reserves that can be dipped into when the weather is too warm. Thanks to Miko, Ruka now boasts one of the longest ski seasons in Europe, with over 200 days of skiing between October and June. From this crazy idea for the years ago, now it's coming reality. And it has been very, very hard work uh, designed the whole concept, which will work also in a very high mountains. There is very high winds, 
150 kilometers per hour, very high ultraviolet uh, influence, rain, a lot of uh, heat load. So the system needs to be very, very simple. And uh, to design and invent something simple, I have to say that's very, very hard. And so, having seen how Vancouver had struggled, this eternal snowman offered his services to Sochi. He was given four years to amass a reserve of one million cubic metres of snow, cloaked under Miko's signature reflective blankets. These giant shimmering molehills, looking like the set of a low-budget sci-fi film, became tourist attractions. When the games began in February 2014, thermometers hit an ice cream melting 20 degrees Celsius at the coastal Olympic Park, culminating in the bizarre sight of thousands of fans turning up to watch ice hockey, skating and curling dressed in t-shirts and shorts. At times, it was warmer than the Summer Olympics in London two years earlier. You all are talking winter storms, we're talking warm temperatures. In fact, I just got back from Olympic Village and I had to take off my jacket because I was so hot. But we're hearing from the head of the Sochi Olympics just releasing a statement saying there is no need to bring in stored snow just yet. However, they say they are ready to do so if it becomes necessary. Vancouver's record for the warmest Winter Olympics was soon broken, as temperatures in Sochi even hit highs of 11 degrees in the mountains. It prompted skiers to stuff snow down their suits to cool down during races. But Miko's ingenuity ensured the alpine venues were never short of the magical powder upon which each event relied. Miko's storage technique doesn't just supply vital backup snow. By reducing the dependency on snowmaking machines and doubling as vital water storage that doesn't require expensive pumping stations, Miko believes his patented insulation silos provide not only a cheaper option, but also a more sustainable one. In terms of future Winter Olympic Games, it could be a game changer. The list of cities that can host the Winter Games is quickly shrinking. Climate change is making winter conditions warmer, foggier, and is negatively influencing snow quality. In January 2022, Professor Daniel Scott of the University of Waterloo updated a paper he'd first released following the Sochi Games. It concerned the future of the Winter Olympics in a warming world. Its conclusions were stark. A study assessing 21 previous host cities of the Winter Olympics and how they'd fare in various emission scenarios shows the picture gets pretty dire. The report stated that the average high temperatures in host cities have been steadily increasing, a trend only partly attributable to the effects of climate change. The IOC's willingness to award the Games to warmer locations is also a key factor. It's a habit it may soon be forced to reconsider. After applying current climate change models to previous host locations, the report found that just one of the 21 previous venues would be climatically suitable to host the Winter Olympics by the end of the century. In this scenario, by 2050, the likes of Grenoble, Salt Lake City, Innsbruck, and inaugural host Chamonix are no longer capable of providing the conditions where even machine-made snow is able to help. In a high emission scenario, it gets even worse. Only one of those cities, Sapporo, Japan, would have conditions good enough to reliably host snow sports. And so, Miko's Rachmaninoff revolution is gradually gaining favour in top ski resorts all over the world. But so far, his Sochi experience remains his only Olympic call-up. This is despite being invited to both South Korea and China to showcase his solution ahead of their respective games in 2018 and 2022. In Beijing, 
His methods even broke records by storing snow for 220 days at an average temperature of 23 degrees Celsius. He even calculated that snow storage could save $50 million in water infrastructure. But they opted against using his help for the games. I was thinking now the people really understand the why we need the snow storages. Because lack of water, you can save a lot of money, stores the snow, you don't need so many snow-making ponds. You get the legacy of the games and you recycle the insulation and you recycle the snow and so ecological. Their duty is to organize the Olympics, not to think about the legacy zone. So it was a bit pity that that's how it is. Of course, a cynic might say that for global sporting events like the Olympics, it's very good business for those involved to spend money rather than save it. We try, but of course, Olympics, there's always a lot of, uh, let's say, very powerful things. Miko is wise not to speak too freely. After all, there's a good chance he'll be in high demand in Olympic circles once again. In 2026, the Olympic flame journeys to Cortina d'Ampezzo, previous hosts in 1956. After that, who knows, with cities in Canada and the USA rumoured to be weighing up bids for 2030, weatherman Chris Doyle can expect a call. So too can Joe, Brooke and Miko. Because in an uncertain climate, the only certainty is that the expertise provided by world-leading snowmakers is now indispensable to host cities. The men and women engaged in a quiet battle with the elements to ensure that, at least for now, the Winter Olympics continue to enthrall a global audience of millions. And if all else fails, the shamans will be waiting. Thanks for listening to the Unsung Podcast. This episode was written and narrated by Alexis James. Additional script editing was provided by Nick Crinian. Artwork is by Matt Walker. And it was produced by me, Matt Cheney. And if you haven't already, make sure you follow the podcast and check out our previous episodes featuring athletic starters and football ground staff. And for yet more tales from sports unheralded heroes, including F1 mechanics, rugby medics, anti-doping officials, and cycling moto pilots, get your hands on Alexis's book. Unsung, not all heroes wear kits, is published by Pitch Publishing and is available from your favourite book outlets. Head to unsungbook.com for more.